Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. You know, people have this idea that the British Army was this gigantic force, you know, biggest in Europe and all that, which is utterly silly. Um, So the British needed to expand when they went to war. And how do you do that? You raise raise troops where you're going to fight, in this case, America. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Todd Braisted talking about Benjamin Thompson's Black Dragoons. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor and prolific author, Todd Braisted. I've gotten to know Todd over the last few years through our shared colleagues and, of course, uh, my time here at the Journal of the American Revolution. He's a wonderful scholar who always finds these incredible poignant details uh, that kind of leave you looking at the American Revolution differently, uh, sort of like uh, looking at it saying, how did I miss this or how did I not know about this? That, of course, is, uh, is me being comp- complimentary of, of Todd, but at the same time, that is the real magic of, of historical research for everyone. Anyone listening can uh, begin researching a topic and sort of be uh, on fire with inspiration. Uh, Todd's article on Thompson's American Dragoons is very well done and a critical part of the American revolutionary story. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Todd Braisted. Todd Braisted, thank you for joining us. Ah, pleasure to be here, Brady. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about your background. Um, well, I it's coming at this somewhat uh, different. I'm not uh, I don't have uh, letters after my name, but I'm a uh, I'm the past president of the Brigade of the American Revolution and the Bergen County Historical Society amongst other things. I'm a fellow in the company of military historians, um, but I consider myself a researcher. Uh, I'm an author, uh, but you know, I go. I like the I like the title researcher. I like to dig into the um, material itself. I've been involved in primary research since 1979, um, and now, if you consider, I just turned uh, 57 years old. So I'll give you an idea of how long I've actually been involved in primary research. You know, I like to I like to read the words of the people who actually lived back then. You know, everything else and anything I write, I include in that. You get the filter of somebody else. Uh, I like to see the raw material. So that is that is my background. I've written, I've lost count, um, dozens of articles, many of which. Um, you can find on Journal of the American Revolution, um, but uh, yeah, so we've got some books out there. We've got uh, we've got a bunch of articles out there. So that's me. 
What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, obviously, we're, um, when it came out was February, so we were in Black History Month. And you know, I have uh, a background, uh, to, to some degree, on black loyalism uh, as a component of the overall research I do on, on loyalists. Back in 1999, my first um, publication in a book um, was uh, the first chapter of a book called uh, Black Loyalist in the Afro-Atlantic World by Garland Publishing. And I got to write on the military role of black loyalists in the American Revolution. It's, you know, there have been other books on this and whatnot. Um, I try to avoid legend and lore. I try to talk about what we can document through the materials of the time, um, not to romanticize anything, um, but really to look at the cold, hard facts uh, and what service people did and, and things of that nature. So it seemed you know, a good time uh, to revisit the, the subject and try and narrow in on one thing in specific, which is the article we did on Benjamin Thompson and the black members of the King's American Dragoons. Why did the British Army first turn to black Americans during the war? It was not a, an overall decision. It was more of an ad hoc sort of thing. Um, John Graves Simcoe, who many people will recognize as the commander of the Queen's Rangers uh, and the chief villain of the uh, series Turn, um, actually commanded a black company in Boston when he was a British officer um, during the winter of 75-76. Um, that we know virtually nothing about. But people like Lord Dunmore in Virginia... Uh, trying to hopelessly hold on to his government there, uh, needed to raise troops. He only had a few British soldiers of the 14th Regiment, so he had to raise troops on his own, and he raised one white regiment and one black regiment, and he promised uh, freedom to any black slaves who were owned by rebels. Now, here's, the, here's an important distinction. They were, had to be owned by rebels, and Dunmore was not, you know, this all-encompassing abolitionist. He was just trying to you know, raise troops at the expense of the enemy. So he could not afford to alienate white loyalists who were slave owners by taking their slaves. But, so he raised a regiment down there, but that was only for service in Virginia. He was a governor of Virginia. He wasn't a, you know, the commander-in-chief of the army in America. So these troops were... You know, sort of like an embodied uh, militia, if you want. So they were not going to serve outside of Virginia, and when Virginia was evacuated later in 76, those regiments were um, dissolved, and, and the men you know, uh, set free. And the British had actually raised a, a company of black pioneers, um, laborers, that did serve uh, for the rest of the war. But you know, the British needed manpower. You know, they... they British Army was a small army. You know, people have this idea that the British Army was this gigantic force, you know, biggest in Europe and all that, which is you know, utterly silly. Um, so the British needed to expand when they went to war. And how do you do that? You raise, um, you raise troops where you're going to fight, in this case, America. Uh, the British had raised, you know, tens of thousands of Americans for the French and Indian War, 
and they would raise tens of thousands of Americans during the American Revolution to fight for them. And that would involve blacks as well, but not exactly uh, as some people think today. What do you feel is the biggest misconception today about the role of black Americans serving in the British Army? That is uh, the, the lead-in to uh, perfect lead-in. The British were not enlisting these men, for the most part, to serve as soldiers. Uh, there were no blacks serving in the ranks of the British Army um, as soldiers uh, carrying muskets or whatnot. And when they started to enlist in the provincial forces, the regular American troops that they were raising, that didn't last long. Once the British appointed an inspector general to better regulate these American regiments in their service, um, he advised the British commander-in-chief, Sir William Howe at the time, that there were, and to use his words, there were Negroes, Mulattoes, Indians, sailors, and other improper persons enlisting in the provincial forces. Um, should they be discharged and none allowed to serve in future? And Howe said, absolutely, get rid of them. So whoever was bearing arms at the time, this is March 1777, they were discharged. Where blacks typically served for the British in what they call the civil branches of the army. Those are the support troops, um, the commissary general's department, the quartermaster general's department, the engineer's department, the barrack master general's department, those sorts of things, those organizations that make the army run. Um, you know, you have... A lot of National Guard units today in the military, sort of like those sort of support elements. Well, that's what the support elements were for the British Army back then. The Royal Artillery even had its own civil branches and its own uh, full companies of blacks, some of which they referred to as the Virginia Company of Blacks. Um, one of George Washington's slaves was a corporal in one of these Royal Artillery um, black laborer companies. Um, but for the blacks that did serve the British, you know, these were support functions. Even the Black Pioneers, which was a provincial unit of nothing but blacks, they were not armed. Um, they served as, you know, sort of like how a town would have a DPW today. In Philadelphia, when they were there, they, they collected garbage. Um, not exactly very glamorous. That wasn't a universal thing with the Army. There were other things that blacks could serve on board Loyalist privateers, for instance, or blacks could serve in refugee units. There was a whole troop of militia that were black in South Carolina. But for the most part, blacks could not bear arms. That's an important distinction. Uh, carry a musket uh, in the British Army. Who was Benjamin Thompson? Uh, Thompson is a, is a fascinating figure, um, and who certainly doesn't get enough press, um, even though there has been um, at least one book written on him, probably more. Um, but he was a loyalist. He was a New Englander. He was born in 1753 in Woburn, Massachusetts. And uh, for those unfamiliar, that's, I think, about 11 miles to the northwest of Boston. Uh, but he was he was not rich. Um, so he wasn't one of these you know, well-educated people, but he was in very bright and very industrious and very fortunate. At 19, he married uh, a woman uh, who did have money. Uh, I believe her name was Sarah Rolfe. And she had some land um, left to her in Portsmouth, uh, well, up in, um, up in uh, New Hampshire. 
So they moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, he was married early, uh, by the, in his early 20s, through her connections with the governor there. He became a major in the New Hampshire militia, but he was a loyalist. And uh, when Governor Wentworth was kicked out of New Hampshire, uh, Thompson uh, followed him, uh, leaving behind his property in New Hampshire and, uh, and Sarah. So uh, he goes off um, to, to, to the British, leaving behind his, his family and his property. And he doesn't stay with the army, however. He goes back to England. Uh, well, he goes to England. I shouldn't say back to England. Um, he's never been there. So he goes to England. And he becomes a protege of the principal secretary of state for America, uh, Lord George Germain, and becomes an undersecretary of state for America. And he somehow becomes, uh, befriends the inspector general of provincial forces, Alexander Innes, the man who got rid of blacks in the provincial corps. And he appoints Thompson. Uh, a deputy inspector general of provincial forces. That puts Thompson in an interesting position to influence the makeup of the, of the corps, uh, specifically their 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 uniforms, their accoutrements, their organization, that sort of thing. So by 1780-81, Thompson is sort of had enough of this administrative stuff. He's a guy in his 20s and you know, he is watching from afar what's going on in America. And now he wants to get back to America and take part in the fighting, do, do something that he can really influence. And so he sees an opportunity uh, for a new unit that is going to be raised, and he thinks he's going to be the perfect guy to lead it. What was unique, in your opinion, about the King's American Dragoons? This is the unit that Thompson wants to command. In 1780, uh, a guy named Daniel Murray, who was the commander of a, a small uh, provincial unit called Wentworth's Volunteers, named after the New Hampshire governor, John Wentworth. And Murray is proposing to the British, not the British commander-in-chief in America, but actually straight to England, that they want to raise a cavalry regiment in America to be commanded by an old French and Indian War general from Boston, Timothy Ruggles. And Ruggles is pretty old at this point. He's not uh, exactly military timber anymore, and he uh, quickly declines um, leading any sort of unit. And Thompson says, I'll command it. And um, a lot of the guys who want to form this unit are New Englanders. They're familiar with Thompson. Um, they respect him. And Thompson in England, organizes all their uniforms uh, and everything else, uh, which is pretty much unheard of. That's generally left on the scene in America. And he creates their own uniform, and they're going to look like real British cavalry, not, you know, people are familiar with Tarleton and Simcoe and whatnot in green. And these King's American Dragoons are going to look more like the 16th Light Dragoons, than the than the British Legion, they're going to be in red coats, face blue, and they're going to have uh, beautiful silk colors. One of which is still in existence today. They're going to have artillery. They're going to have four light cannon called amusettes, um, all sorts of stuff. He he completely orders them uh, all their equipment, all their weapons, um, all this are that's sent to America, and he's going to follow it out to America. 
Now, the regiment itself is raising it in New York City, um, and Thompson is going to embark for New York City, but he's not going to wind up there for a while. Did the Dragoons see any major action during the war? Well, yeah. To, how can I put this? The Dragoons, as a regiment, as, as the King's American Dragoons at New York, will not see a shot fired in anger. However, some of the men who served in the Dragoons at New York had come from units that had been drafted into them um, and had seen service in the war. Men uh, like, uh, who had served in the Loyal New Englanders from Rhode Island or uh, Captain Stewart's troop of New Jersey cavalry. Those units had seen a bunch of action before they became a part of the King's American Dragoons. Um, the only <laughs> I gotta put the action that um, any of the Dragoons at New York saw were five guys who were sick in a house uh, in Brooklyn were captured in a whaleboat raid. Um, that's, um, that's about their biggest action there. Now, however, Thompson had come out from England. The, the convoy of ships that he was in was diverted from New York um, and made it through, because of storms, ended up in Charleston, South Carolina. And Thompson had brought out uh, several men with him, plus the adjutant. The adjutant of the, of the new regiment was going to be an Englishman, uh, a former cavalryman uh, from the 17th Light Dragoons. And some of the, the uh, men he brought with him were black. They were former slaves from England. They were going to be trumpeters in the corps. Uh, plus one um, white soldier that he brought out with him was going to be the armorer. So he gets to Charleston, and they, he finds out he's not going anywhere for a while. So he offers to command the Loyalist Cavalry at Charleston. And there's a lot of Loyalist Cavalry at Charleston, the South Carolina Royalists, the North Carolina Dragoons, um, some Queen's Rangers, some British Legion, um, this, uh, some militia cavalry, uh, this, this black uh, militia troop that are there. So he recruits while he's there. He ends up recruiting um, almost a couple dozen guys uh, for the King's American Dragoons in Charleston and trains them, trains them all as cavalry. These uh, guys down there had served for a long time, but they never really had a really good cavalry officer to lead them. Now, Thompson's never led guys before. I mean, major in militia doesn't really count as a cavalry officer, um, but he had somehow learned how to do his craft, and not only did he train them well, but he defeated um, none other than Francis Marion in battle in South Carolina in February of 1782. Two actions in two days in South Carolina, uh, beating American partisans. Um, when and he instantly became the toast of the town in in Charleston, and within a few weeks, however, you know they were bon voyage. Um, Thompson and uh, his uh, little band of married men, uh, merry men, <laughs> went up to New York City and joined the regiment up there, uh, where there would be no more um, no more fighting. He wanted the regiment to come down to Charleston, um, but the British had other ideas. How did Thompson lobby for these men in the final months of the war? Well, the point of the article is talking about Thompson's black guys. As we mentioned earlier, um, the caveat was that the um, blacks cannot carry muskets in, in the ranks of, of the provincial regiments or the British Army. What Thompson looked to do 
was utilize them in his regiment, which was a provincial regiment, in other ways. So he, number one, started off all the trumpeters of the regiment, those he brought out from England and those he recruited in America, would all be black. They'd be armed, you know, the same as the other cavalrymen with swords and pistols. No musket. They're trumpeters. Also pioneers. Uh, each troop would have one or two pioneers, laborers. In the cavalry, they're known as farriers, um, to serve uh, in the ranks, both mounted and dismounted, as pioneers. Those men would all be black. The servants of the officers uh, would also all be black, and they would have a role in the regiment. Uh, initially, they were, they were to assist the cavalry troopers uh, with these four light amusettes, these uh, light artillery pieces. Uh, these artillery pieces were extremely unique. They were strapped to the horses um, and rode into battle. And as soon as the, the troops would stop, they'd quickly dismount uh, unload the, the, the amusettes from the horses, set them up, and fire. And Thompson even trained these guys to, to jump uh, fences what, and whatnot with cannons strapped to the horses. Uh, that must have been an incredible sight. Um, so, you know, they, they could do this all in, in, in about a minute and a half, if Thompson's to be believed. Um, so it, he really wanted to, you know, have more troops like these. When the revolution was ending, um, he lobbied for the regiment to go to the West Indies or the East Indies, to India itself, and to expand the regiment uh, to include four companies of light infantry drawn from other provincial units and have a full company of black artillery um, to, to have a, a greater artillery strength. Uh, and the men, and those men, to be armed with swords, but no muskets. So um, he was really trying to expand on this. Of course, that never happened uh, when the prelim- preliminary articles of peace arrived in New York in April of 1783. Thompson knew that you know the game was up, so he set sail for England to either solicit. Um, the regiment to go to India if the war was to be continued, which of course it wasn't, or that the regiment would be put upon a permanent establishment and the officers could all get half pay, which all provincial officers ended up being. Um, So in the end, the regiment would go up to, um, uh, would not see any more service. They would be um, disbanded the same as uh, any other provincial unit. What happened to them after the war? Well, Thompson never returns to the regiment. He stays in England, and his last request to the British commander-in-chief at the time, Sir Guy Carleton, was that the regiment be sent to the River St. John, be sent to Nova Scotia. Uh, The St. John River is now in modern uh, New Brunswick after the partition, um, after the, the western part of Nova Scotia was made New Brunswick. The regiment was sent up there, in early July of 1783 uh, as, a, uh, as a complete unit. So all the, the black trumpeters, all the black pioneers, all the black servants accompanied the regiment up to what is now St. John, New Brunswick. And they, they would go further up the St. John River. 
they would, of course, be joined by thousands of loyalists, both military and civilian, in the following months. And, you know, in, in preparation of the article, I wanted to find out more about the individuals, the, the black individuals that we know by name uh, in particular, to see if there were any stories that we could find to tell about their new life um, in New Brunswick, because they would get grants of land for um, every, every loyalist would get land, black and white, um, at least we're supposed to. And I cannot find uh, a single anecdote. Um, there's, I could find very, very few for any of the white uh, soldiers in the regiment either. Um, so, and there were obviously many more white soldiers in the regiment than black. So it's not entirely surprising. It's disappointing. But if they were, if we assume that they had the same experience as the white soldiers, they would have gotten provisions for a couple of years. They would have gotten uh, a grant of land based on their rank, um, which would have been you know, 100 acres since none of them were um, non-commissioned officers or obviously not officers. They would have um, been given um, some implements uh, for husbandry. Uh, they wanted the British one, all these, uh, all the loyalists up there to become farmers or tradesmen or whatnot. Uh, to make uh, you know, what was left of British North America prosperous. Um, but they would have had um, as hard a time as anybody else, particularly that first winter um, when there were... You know, the problem with getting, giving out free land, it, it, that's great, but you have to survey the land first. You can't just say willy-nilly that, you know, this is my land. Um, so that took a while. That took a couple of years. And that first winter up there was severe. They had 14 snowstorms uh, by the end of December. Um, and these guys were mostly living in tents with their, with their wives and children. So that was a really tough time up there. So they're scattered up. Um, if their descendants are no doubt um, scattered up and down the, the St. John River or God knows where else today. How does this story help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, that, now that's a tough question because you're dealing with um, so many different viewpoints here. Thompson himself has very little in common um, with the black soldiers that he wants uh, in his regiment. He has not that much in common, perhaps, with the white ones either. Um, but he does try to utilize them. Um, to the best of his ability to, even though he has to circumvent the standing regulations that prohibit using them to the fullest, um, he's finding ways, um, in, in ingenious ways, to, to use them. Using the, the servants to, to serve on artillery pieces was quite unique to the King's American Dragoons. So there's, if you're looking for how, does it under, how do we understand better uh, or how, what makes this uh, unique or significant? It's, I guess, that there's a will, there's a way, um, you know, to to use, you know, to make a, a bad situation better. Um, and uh, all of us, <laughs> the last eleven months or so, have been living in a bad situation. We can all have our own experiences of trying to make this this better. Uh, for me, it was writing an article on Benjamin Thompson and his, uh, black soldiers, um, but you know, it it helps uh, 
better understand a, a fuller degree, um, you know, how people were utilized during the American Revolution. Perhaps not uh, as well as they could have been or should have been, but you know, they did what they felt was right, and you know, we can discuss it today. Todd Braystead, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.